I, I, th- I hope and pray that you have a happy and safe uh, Independence Day this week. I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But first, I need to tell you about a friend of mine. Uh, I had several different roommates during my time in college. A couple guys named Mike, uh, <laughs> a couple ni- guys named Matt, a dude named Scott. But the guy I spent the most time with, the, the individual I'm talking about when I use the phrase, my college roommate, uh, was a guy named Ken. Uh, Ken and I have been friends for almost 30 years. We don't talk, there's a picture of the two of us. He's a youth minister in Sandusky, Ohio. So like Fort Wayne is kind of like halfway for both of us. So a while back we met at a Starbucks there in Fort Wayne and just kind of spent the morning, like we hadn't seen each other in the flesh for a long time, texting, yeah, and stuff, but like to just be with, and he's a nerd like me, so he's going to be here next month for Gen Con. Um, You know, I'm excited about that. I get to see Ken again. And I could tell you stories about this guy. He is a nut, but we'd get in the weeds on that, so we'll save that for another time. The thing that's relevant about him today is the way he describes his marriage with his wife, Jen. Um, We all met in college together, and uh, Ken and I were roommates, and we were going to go on a double date with a couple other girls, and um, I was actually with Jen, um, but it was, it became apparent about 10 minutes into dinner, these two are connecting, not so much the other way. Uh, I hadn't met Debbie yet, she was still in high school, it was, that was a ways off, but, um, Ken just won her heart, and they'd been married for like, I think like 26 years this summer or something, I mean, like, like quite a while, but you wouldn't know that, I mean, they're, they're, deeply in love with one another. You wouldn't know if you looked at his Facebook page, because here's what it says, right? This is a picture. This is Sandusky, Ohio from San Jose, California. It's been complicated with Jen Rawson. Like, dude, come on, man. But that, you know, that just that gives you insight into my roommate. Relationships should not be defined by their difficulties, right? Like, that's, that's not good. But they very often are a focal point of kind of overlapping layers of complexity, and, and they can really get complicated. And the point I'm trying to put in front of you today is that as a Christian, your relationship with your government is complicated. There are very few relationships, honestly, there are very few relationships in life that are, like, simple. Like, most of them are complicated. And I would argue that your relationship with your government is one of the best examples of that. So on the Sunday before Independence Day, we're going to talk about that. So thank you for being with us. For those watching online, thanks for logging in. Those of you here in the room, I'm grateful that you're here. One thing to add to your prayer list, um, our brother Bill Wiesner passed away this uh, toward the end of last week. Um, so please be in prayer for Sandy and the Wiesner family uh, as they mourn uh, Bill's passing. We don't know, we don't have information yet on funeral stuff, so we'll let you know uh, when we do. But keep uh, Sandy and, your, and her family uh, in your prayers. Um, and open your Bibles to Romans 13. We're going to start there today. I'll put several passages up on the screen and try to give you enough warning to turn to them in advance. But we're going to start in Romans 13. We read some of that earlier. We'll look at the whole chunk together today. Uh, but we're going to look at a bunch of different scriptures. And I think that that's fitting Because a Christian's relationship with his or her government is a complicated thing. I mean, on one hand, we're to be good citizens, okay? On the other hand, our ultimate loyalty is to our King, Jesus. 
And it might be an appropriate time now to remind you that the system of government in heaven is an absolute but benevolent monarchy. Thank you. That's what I was hoping for. Um, It is an absolute but benevolent monarchy. When you shuffle off this mortal coil, you will never vote again, ever. Hallelujah, right? One of the greatest things about heaven, no elections, woo! Um, It'll be great. Uh, (laughs) And you need to know that the one who rules over you with absolute benevolent authority is more concerned with your good your flourishing, your wholeness than you could ever possibly imagine. So for us, that creates kind of a complex situation here, doesn't it? Here's the big idea this morning. Being willing to embrace complexity in your relationship with your country makes you a better citizen and a better Christian. So I have two goals today. I want you to walk out of here loving the United States of America more than you ever have before in your life. Second, and more importantly, I want you to walk out of here loving Jesus more than you love the United States. And if I can't do both, I've failed. Okay? And the struggle that we all have in doing that well is that it's complicated. It takes careful study. It takes deep reflection. It takes loving application of Scripture. And that's complicated, but that's okay. Because the picture that Scripture paints of a Christian's relationship with his or her government is a complicated one. Now, you're like, well, how? Like, how so? That's a good question. I think there are three complications that I want to put in front of you this morning. The first is the issue of submission. The issue of submission. That's a word that here in the United States we don't like very much. Right? I mean, King George III of England wanted us to submit to his authority 247 years ago, and we literally fought a war to not have to do that. And there's a real argument to be made that his rule over our forebearers was unjust, and therefore the Revolutionary War was not only morally acceptable, but even commendable. That's beyond the scope of this message. If you want to go down the theological rabbit hole and, and, and study that, you can Google um, St. Augustine's uh, theory of a just war, J-U-S-T, just war. Not only war, but it's, it's just, it's right, it's morally acceptable. And, and you can go way down the rabbit hole and you can study that out. It's, it's really interesting stuff, um, it, it, helpful. I think Origen talked about that some too. So, but that's kind of beyond our, our scope today. For the Christian, however, submission to governing authorities is commanded. Now look at what Paul said to the church in Rome. Look at with me at Romans 13, starting in verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. 
Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is a hard teaching. It naturally raises some questions, and one of the first ones that you you can't help but ask, right, is every authority is instituted by God? Like, every authority? Like, Hitler? I mean, they voted him in, right? It was an election. He, He won. You can argue whether or not it was fair, but he won. Chairman Mao? Stalin? Really? Every every authority? Well, here's my definitive theological answer on that. Maybe. (laughs) Most scholars believe that Paul is is speaking here of legitimate authority. In other words, a a bloodstained murderous coup would not fit this. Um, That said, we know from the Old Testament that God often used really bad nations to judge other bad nations. Read Habakkuk, right? It's just three chapters, take you less than an hour. You can go home and read that today. And the prophet basically says in in these short three chapters, God, I know Israel is bad, but Babylon? Really? Babylon? They're worse. God says, I know, but they're my instrument to accomplish my will. Prophet says, okay, (laughs) I don't get it, but I will praise you. We know this from the Old Testament, and we know this from the New Testament. God's own son, Jesus, suffered under an abuse of power and did not rebel against it. In our devotions at home, we've been reading through the Gospel of Mark. And just this past week, we read the passage where Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified. He was innocent. Pilate knew it. And yet, it's politically expedient. So, uh, see ya. You can have Barabbas, though. That's okay. (laughs) So we'll hand over, we'll, we'll let go a murderer and crucify the only innocent man who's ever walked the face of this earth. Uh, That's called political corruption. Here's the point. Breaking any just and justly enacted law is a sin. Romans 13 says that God has established human governments because humankind is sinful, and we have to have some kind of authority over us to restrain us until the day of judgment, which is part of the context here in Romans 13. So we all know, yes, stealing is is a sin. Lying is a sin. Adultery is a sin. But so is cheating on your taxes and speeding. Got your attention now, don't I? So Paul stands in solidarity with the Old Testament prophets and the actions of Jesus in telling us that the primary purpose of government is to restrain evil. Paul is saying that submission, in modern language, obeying the law of the land, is required when the law is just and does not command wickedness. But in all other cases, here's the complication... We know that God's law always overrides man's law. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. Think about the apostles. The apostles are on trial for continuing to preach the gospel after being thrown into prison for doing just that. 
right? They're miraculously released by an angel in the night. What do they do? They immediately go back to the temple courts and they start preaching. They're arrested again. And the leaders are like, we told you not to do this. Why are you doing what we told you not to do? And what does Peter say? In Acts 5, 29, he says, Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. God's law always overrules man's law every time. However, when man's law is just and does not command you to do wickedness or prevent you from doing righteousness, it's got two facets to that, two two sides of the coin, then you must obey man's law. You have an obligation to submit to every just law enacted by the government, and the only time you're allowed to break it is when God's law overrules it. Right? And this, you know, like why is this so hard? Because we're corrupt, because we're broken, because we're sinful, right? This is, I think, at the, at the root, at the heart of something that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote. <laughs> you know, you guys know I love the Lord of the Rings, right? There's this great quote that he said. He said, the most improper job of any man, even saints, is bossing other men. Not one in a million is fit for it, and least of all those who seek the opportunity, <laughs> I love this. I, you know, I mean, I already love the guy, but that just made me love him more. You remember this in November. <clears throat> I mean, think about what he wrote, right? The return of the king. In Tolkien's mind, the best form of government is that of a morally upright and just king. And church, that is what we have. His name is Jesus. And he reigns from David's throne eternally. In those few places, and they are few, where the law of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords overrides that of the United States, you have an obligation to obey His law first. In all other cases, you're subject to the law of this land. And sometimes that can get complicated. That's one complication. Here's the second one. It's the issue of participation. So first we talked about submission. Now we're talking about participation. I love this quote by Sir Winston Churchill from the 11th of November in 1947. He's talking about government. He said, many forms of governments have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. And then he said this, indeed it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. <laughs> I I think we can all agree that a representative democracy, like we have here in the United States, it's not a pure democracy, it's representative, get that straight, is far superior to most other forms of government that have been tried in the long tale of years that is human history. History bears witness to the fact that representative democracy is, at the very least, the least evil of all forms of human government, and probably the best balance of personal freedom and civic responsibility. I really do believe that our founding fathers were brilliant. They weren't perfect. They could have taken a few more steps and really hit it out of the park. Outlawing slavery would have been a good example of that. But for the most part, I mean, they, they really did well. And, and, and I love the fact that we can participate in our own governance. But this creates a complication. Let me show you what I mean. Turn in your Bibles to Acts 16, or, or tap there in your Bible app, right? 
Um, we're going to look at a passage in Acts 16. This is right after Paul and Silas have been uh, captured for preaching the gospel and, and scourged and put in prison, right? Their, their, their feet are splayed out in the stocks. Their backs are bleeding, and they stay up all night singing praise, and there's an earthquake, and the jailer comes in ready to kill himself because he thinks they've all escaped, but they're like, no, we're all still here, and and so they, went and they, they preached the gospel to the jailer, and he converts. His whole household converts, and it's this incredible thing, right? In the morning, verse 35, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. Like, he's all happy about it. <laughs> but Paul says to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. Why would that be alarming? Because in the Roman Empire, it was illegal to beat a Roman citizen without a trial. If they had a trial and they were convicted, yeah, beat the snot out of them. Have fun. Enjoy it. But prior to that, that was totally against the law. And what will, what will happen to these guys who violate this law? Well, they will get a beating and put in prison. So that's why they're alarmed, right? They, they're like, oh, no, we messed up. Verse 39, they came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them, <laughs> do you see that? Requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, and when they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, then they left. Listen, the culture we live in now is very different from the one that Paul and Silas ministered in and wrote, wrote, Paul wrote his letters to. Right? The Roman Republic, with its senators and plebeians representing different territories, had been functionally dead for about 100 years by the time Paul's ministry rolls around, you know, give or take. Like, that, that idea of, you know, the, the senators and the Senate debating the future of Rome, like, that, that had long gone. It had been under the rule of an, an emperor for quite a while by this point. And so, you know, the, the thought that for these people that you could choose your leaders at the highest levels of government was just, that would be totally foreign to the people to whom Paul wrote. And so in, in the 21st century in America, we have this incredible privilege of choosing our leaders. And with that privilege comes a high responsibility. You need to vote. Do your homework. Figure out what your candidates represent and, and, and vote based on that. If I could just wave my hand, you know, magic wand and pass a law that would improve the, our representative democracy, I think the two things that would make it best are mandatory term limits for every government position and a federal ban on straight party, straight ticket voting. I think that would, because it would force people to do their homework. You can't be lazy that way. You've got to find out who's, who's more engaged. Participate more. This is a good thing. We have a privilege to do this. And our religious forebearers didn't have that. They just had to deal with whatever came. See, after the passage we read in Romans 13, Paul commands them then to pay their taxes. So for us, we, we have this participation. Yeah, we can choose our leaders, but we also participate as we pay our taxes, Right? We can participate with our government that way and be good citizens. Here's the problem for these Christians. The taxes that they supported, 
or the taxes that they paid supported Rome in building out this road network. Do you understand? This is so amazing to me. God used a pagan empire to get his gospel all over the world within a, few, within a matter of a few years, right? Because Romans built roads everywhere they went. I'll tell you a story in a little while. I got to walk on one of them. It's so cool. Like, they're still there. It's awesome. And God, he had Rome just build these roads and make it safe, and the gospel was able to expand all over the Roman Empire very fast. So their taxes supported that. But you know what else they supported? They supported the Roman legions going in and oppressing people. And they supported the emperor cult. They supported the the literal worship of the emperor as a god, lowercase g. And so when they paid their taxes, yeah, they paid for those roads and that security that made it possible for the gospel to go everywhere, but they also paid to support that. Paul is telling them to render what is owed even to governments who would do evil things with those monies or use them to take away the rights and sometimes even lives of Christians. And Paul has the moral authority to do that, and here's why. In Acts 16, the passage that we read, Paul holds his rights as a Roman citizen in reserve until after he has taken the beating, right? It's not like he remembered all of a sudden after he got the snot kicked out of him that he was a Roman citizen. He knew the whole time. He just doesn't say anything about it until after they beat him. But, fast forward a few chapters. In Acts 22... They're about to do the same thing. They're going to beat him again. And Paul says, you're going to beat a Roman citizen? And uh, they hit the brakes. What? I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. And no beating. Here's the deal. Reserving in his rights in Acts 16 served to advance the gospel. And using him in Acts 22 served to advance the gospel. That is his primary motivation. So he holds his rights in reserve... He, he, he allows his rights to be trampled on to advance the gospel, to, to have a better testimony in Philippi, right? What's one of the major themes in the book of Philippians? Suffer, joy in the midst of suffering. And yet, he's like, now nah, I got to get to Rome. I got to get to Rome. So I appeal to Caesar. And now he's getting a government-funded mission trip to Rome. Paul is selective in how he uses his rights. The way that he participates with his government is driven by, I want you to hear me here clearly, it is driven by his relationship with God, not his relationship as a citizen of Rome. And I would argue that that's instructive for us too. Is that complicated, parsing that out every time? Yes, yeah, it is. But I think that that's the example that that we're given here. The issue of how we participate with our government is complicated, and and the polarization of our politics has only made it more so. On some level, I think this is what Vinoth Ramachandra was talking about in his book, Gods That Fail, Modern Idolatry and Christian Mission. And in it, he writes, it is apparent that both liberals and fundamentalists, I think he's talking about conservatives, each of whom perceive the other as the arch enemy, are far more deeply united than they think. They're both victims of the mood swings of post-enlightenment Western culture. Now listen to what he, look at what he says here. If the church is to be obedient to her vocation to confront the multiform idolatries of the modern world, do you understand what he's saying? He's saying for so many people, politics is an idol. And their participation in politics looks a whole lot like idol worship. 
because the worldview is completely based on that and not in Scripture. He says, if the church is going to be obedient and confront these idolatries, she must begin by repenting of ways of thinking about truth, tradition, and authority that derive from an alien mindset. There's a lot more I could say about that. Go back to the lenses series from January of last year and listen to the one on polarity, the polarity lens. There's a lot more there about that. Basically, what we're saying is don't make an idol of government. Participation is a great blessing. It's a general good. It is incumbent on us as good citizens to pay our taxes and to vote and to pray for our leaders. But when a government becomes irredeemably corrupt, or at least in a particular area, that's where our participation has to end. And we have to be real selective about that. And you know what, church? Do you know what that might lead to? might lead to a beating. You might get mocked publicly in the marketplace of ideas or on social media, and God forbid, it may eventually one day lead to physical, corporal pain. What if we did this? What if we began to think of ourselves more as tourists than residents? Right? What if we began to think of ourselves that way? Let me explain what I mean. When you travel, when you go to another country, and I've had opportunity to do this. I like to travel. I enjoy it. Um, it, It's fun for me. I'm kind of an adventurous eater. Like, I'll try anything once, you know. Like, um, it's fun. I I, I dig it. And I like learning about new places and new peoples, and that's fun for me. And I've got the kind of job where if I wanted to, I could have a job overseas. I could plant, I could be a missionary. I could plant a church in another country. There are churches that are looking for preachers. I'm not going anywhere. I'm just telling you I could. (laughs) Some of you are like, oh, gone. Um, <laughs> but I want to be here. I, I, I love my country. I, I, I wouldn't want to live. I've had opportunity to travel to other. I think Mark Twain was right when he said travel is fatal to prejudice. I've had opportunity to travel. But here's the thing. I, what, I'm trying to think of myself more like a tourist. When I go to another country, I'm subject to the laws of that land. Whether I like them or not. But the law that rules in my heart, I mean, I might, I might see their flag and recognize that it's their flag, but the one I like, I'm wearing today. What if we begin to think of ourselves that way regarding the politics of this world, Christians? That we're under the authority of our king. And so what if we begin to think more like a tourist? <laughs> like, yeah, I'll be respectful of the laws of the land. I'll pay, yep, I'll, I'll, I'll do what, I, what is needed, but my loyalty, my, 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 my heart is given what I really want to participate in is his kingdom. And that really leads us to the next and final complication. It's the issue of dedication. So there's this idea of submission, that's complicated. The idea of participation, that's complicated. But ultimately, the most complicated thing is dedication. You've heard me say before, I love this country. I do. I love to travel. It's cool. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But I'm also clear-eyed about our nation's faults. And sometimes traveling can help that as well. You, you see other places, and, and there are, there, to be very, very fair, I, I think gen, even generous to our country, there are, there are much less than other places. Far less. Our faults are... are here, I learned this in 2015 in Albania. I got to go on a mission trip to Albania in 2015. You may or may not know this. Albania was one of the most communist countries in Europe, in the years that communism dominated Eastern Europe. Like, like they, 
they were hardcore, anti-God, atheist, you know. And when in the 90s, all that changed, the pendulum swung completely the other way. So we went in with a Campus Crusade for Christ mission to try to work with some young people. We were there. And we were in Korcha, Albania, a city of about 90,000 in the southeast part of the country. It's like an hour from the border with Greece. And, and it, was, it, was, it was great. We had a great week. Had a, a great pe- Some kids got baptized um, in the weeks following our, our time there. It was, it was a fruitful trip. But, but we were walking through Korcha one time. And like I said, Albania is very pro-American now. It looks very much like a Western democracy. And we're walking down the street and, and obviously speaking English, or at least what passes for it in the United States. And um, this guy heard us speaking. And he goes, Hi, excuse me, this is an older man. Are you, are you Americans? <laughs> Busted. How'd you know? Um, and he goes, oh, we love America in Albania. We love America. And then he said this, American president never lies. <laughs> remember your history 2015 um and i'm going well uh but to him in eastern europe in a relative sense yeah when we look at corruption in our government we go that's bad and there are other places in the world and they go that's better than what we've got I want to talk to you about something Jesus did. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22. Because I, I, what I, want to, I just want to try to imitate Jesus in this. Jesus was once pressed on the issue of dedication to his country, his people. And his response was absolutely brilliant, as you'd expect. But look with me at Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Look at this. It says, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now let's pause right there. Sometimes we forget that Jesus lived his entire human life as a second-class citizen in an oppressed country. As a Jewish man in Galilee and Judea, his rights were always going to come second to those of a Romans. Always. Many in Jesus' day were claiming that paying this tax was, was breaking the second commandment. You remember the second commandment? You shall have no graven images. Right? We think idol worship, but on the coin that is used, it's got Caesar's face and a statement of his divinity. And they're like, if you hold that, that's worshiping an idol. That's where they're going with this question. Look at verse 18. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, knowing their evil intent said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. Now a denarius is a day's wage. What's that mean? He doesn't have one. Jesus can't reach into his pocket and pull out it. He doesn't even have a day's wages in his pocket. So they have to bring him one. So Jesus gets poverty too. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, 
So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Do you see how Jesus deals with the issue of dedication? He tells him essentially, this coin is the property of Caesar. And if Caesar wants his own coin back, give it to him. But your life is the property of God. And when God asks for your life back in submission and dedication, you give that to him. I think he's also providing a ranking for them of what their priorities of loyalty should be. First to God, and, and, and a, a distant second or, or third, you know, love of family and country. Depending, and those change depending on who you're talking about. Ultimately, our dedication is primarily to God and our love for country should be a distant second or third, right? Your love for God should always supersede your love for kin and country. Let me ask you a question. By show of hands, and people watching online, you can type me in the chat. How many of you, have anybody here ever spent the 4th of July overseas in another country? Anybody here? A few hands up? Okay, All right. It's, kind of, it's different, isn't it? It's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's strange. Um, when, uh, in 1988, my parents went on a mission trip to Scotland to help plant a church. Uh, they happened to be there on the 4th of July. Uh, they were there through the summer. Uh, and th- at that morning strategy meeting, they met every morning for, like, here's what we're doing today. We're going to go canvas these neighborhoods, and, and we're going to pray together, and then we're g- going to go out. The, the, the leader got up, and he said, hey, I'm sure you all know that uh, today's 4th of July, and, and later today, um, it'll be tomorrow for you guys, but uh, later today, our Uh, Our countrymen are going to be celebrating their independence, but we are in the United Kingdom. It's not really a thing over here. So he reached into his pocket, and he he pulled out a brown paper bag, and he was just like, so uh, just for all of you, you know, Americans, happy 4th of July. (laughs) That That was it. That was all they could do, right? You know. And then he was like, let's get to work. You know, I was 12 years old when my parents went on that trip, and that has stuck with me ever since. What a, what a great analogy of a Christian's loyalty. Yeah, great, America, woo I am a child of the king, and I am a citizen of the kingdom. Let's get to work. Building that. We've got a team in Mexico right now. We, uh, Friday afternoon, had a, a group of uh, young people and adults uh, take off. They're, they're down there now. So please be in prayer uh, for this team this week as they're, they're there. Uh, maybe this perspective can help. We can only experience a limited amount of government in our relatively short lives. I, I don't know about you. I'd love a time machine, go back to 1778. Like, that'd be awesome. Like, right? America's brand new. That'd be so cool, Right? I'm too young to remember the civil rights movement. That'd be cool. Go back in time and see that, be there for that, be you know, able to witness those momentous events. But the rule and reign of God are eternal. And our eternity will be under his rule, not the Constitution. And therefore, we should be more dedicated to his reign than anything else. So yes, be patriotic. Yes, vote. Yes, on Tuesday, blow stuff up in the name of America. but always and only in subordination to your discipleship to Jesus.
So where's the gospel in all this? Well, that part's actually pretty simple. With all this complication, that's simple. And here it is. Do not look to kings or elected officials to provide something in your life that only the king of kings and lord of lords can give. Because on judgment day, you will acknowledge the authority, you will, you will not acknowledge the authority of the one you chose, but you will bow the knee and bend yourself to the authority of the one who chose you when he died on the cross in your place for your sin. Did you hear me? Being willing to embrace complexity in your relationship with your country, it makes you a better citizen and it makes you a better Christian. And so this 4th of July, this Independence Day, as we celebrate our country and all the good things that God has done here, let's remember that our ultimate loyalty is in heaven and that one day we await the return of our king who will take us to his kingdom where we will reign in glory with him forever and ever and ever. Maybe you need to become a citizen of the kingdom today. You've got an opportunity to do that now. This citizenship is of far greater worth than the one that's on your driver's license. And so if you've never made a decision to acknowledge Jesus as Lord, I would invite you as we sing together here in just a second to come forward and do that. Maybe you're dealing with a really complicated situation in your life. It has nothing to do with our country, but it's a personal thing for you. And I would just urge you that we'd love to pray with you. Our next step room is open. One of our elders is in there. You can go in and, and have a conversation about that. If we can partner with you to pray, we'd love to do that. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to sing together. And you respond as God leads you today.